hjärtligt välkommen till Intus, alla som är välkomna. And also welcome to you, Peter Williams. You've come all the way from England to join uh, Skeptisuka and Sonai. We're very pleased that you also have time to come here to Intus. Uh, yes, I think we'll just start. Uh, I'll introduce yourself afterwards. Uh, okay. So we can start by praying for this meeting. Thank you, Jesus, for everyone who's come here. Thank you for Peter and what he is going to talk to us about. And I pray that he will speak your words and that you will be with everyone in this room tonight. And bless the team. Mm -hmm. Amen. 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 Well, thank you very much uh, for turning out on a snowy evening. Like, I guess you're used to that. That's the sort of thing I would say in England, isn't it? Uh, so thank you very much for turning out uh, anyway, and particularly for sitting in the front rows. In, in England, no one would ever sit in the front row of, of a group like this. So that is uh, very impressive and very friendly, obviously. So that's nice. Uh, uh, there's... Uh, these little sort of giant blown up business cards uh, that you may be uh, sitting on and crinkling even as we speak. Uh, uh, a blatant act of self-publicity, but mainly uh, so that you have my contact details, uh, details about my website, my podcast and so on, various other recommended websites and uh, podcasts and some books and so on uh, that I think are good places to start in this whole area of Christian apologetics that I'm addressing this evening. And if you're thinking, Christian Apollo what now? We shouldn't be saying sorry for being Christians. Uh, then you're absolutely right. Don't worry, I will unpack uh, some of this terminology. And uh, only a philosopher like myself uh, could get really enthusiastic about defining something. But I, I hope by the end of tonight you'll see the value of, of taking some time to think about, well, what is apologetics uh, within uh, the Christian kind of theological framework, what are we doing uh, when we do apologetics, and that actually it will be an encouragement to your uh, personal walk with Christ and to your evangelism uh, and so on. So uh, behind me here, there we go, let me stand out of the way so that I'm not blocking your view. Apologetics in 3D, 3D is all the, all the rage at the cinema at the moment. Uh, so. I'm jumping on the bandwagon, apologetics in 3D. Just imagine that it's you know, leaping out at you like this. <laughs> uh, but you'll see why I'm calling it uh, apologetics in 3D as we go through. Uh, the term apologetics, we you know, derive this term from the New Testament. Uh, particularly famous use of it comes in 1 Peter 3 verse 15, where Peter uh, says that Christians should always be prepared to give an answer. It's often translated in the English at least. And the word there is apologia. It's a Greek word that would say refer to what your, what your barrister, your lawyer would do for you in court when he was defending you. It literally means give a word back or to defend yourself against an accusation. And the context here is pagans looking at Christians who are living different lives ethically because of their faith in Jesus and they're, and they're saying you know why aren't you coming to the to the idol feast you mean why are you behaving like this and and, and Peter says always be ready to give a word back of defense saying you know here's why I'm 
I'm behaving like this now because of my faith in Jesus. Uh, Christianity is not, not one of those Greek mystery religions where the details of the faith are kept a secret from outsiders and it's like, well, you know, I can't tell you why I'm doing it because it's secret. You have to become a Christian in order to find out. As would be the case with many Greek religions at the time. You know, Peter is saying, no, no tell people. How, you know, give them an explanation. Give them a word back. To everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, your hope in Jesus. And then, very significantly, he says, do this with gentleness and respect. Do it with gentleness towards the person who's, who's asked you this kind of accusatory question. And do it in respect, with respect for God. That's whether the words point outwards to other people, gentleness, and doing it in respect uh, of Christ of God. So that's where the term comes from. And then over the years, it, it's uh, muted as language does. And in English, we now use apology to mean saying sorry. And of course, uh, that's not what Christian apologetics is about at all. Christian apologetics has come to mean not only defending Christian uh, faith and practice and so on, against uh, questions or accusations against it, but also even giving positive reasons to be Christian, to think that living a Christian life is a reasonable, good and beautiful thing. This is uh, a few slides of sort of preamble before I get into uh, uh, unpacking a, a, a more meaty definition of apologetics, but I think these are useful little thoughts to begin with and after I've introduced these thoughts I'll stop for a little bit for some questions or dis discussion uh, on these issues. I don't think we should make really a division between ap apologetics and evangelism. I have a friend in the UK who thinks these are, these are terrible words and what we should just talk about in the church is doing persuasive evangelism because he says there's no point in doing evangelism that's not persuasive. <laughs> and that puts the two concepts together. And I think, really, that that's, that's uh, very biblical. Uh, the American Christian writer Douglas Grothaus says, this artificial separation of evangelism from apologetics must end. The Apostle Paul serves as a model for us in that he both proclaimed and defended the gospel. He said, I, you know, I am set for the defense of the gospel. I am set for the apologia of the gospel. Uh, Jesus also, also rationally defended his views. Think of all of those uh, dialogues where the Pharisees are trying to trip him up in the book of Mark in particular. And there's a whole section where he's, he's debating and dialoguing uh, with the Pharisees and the Sadducees at the temple. Jesus rationally defended his views as well as just you know, proclaiming them. If you proclaim Christianity, people are going to have questions. And it, you know, it's obviously going to have questions about Christianity. You want to know, you know what, what are you wanting me to buy into, as it were? Um, can I ask you some questions? So as soon as you proclaim the gospel uh, to uh, people, you're going to find yourself involved in apologetics. More should we have this artificial distinction between apologetics and spiritual warfare? Here's what uh, St. Paul says about uh, spiritual warfare in 2 Corinthians 10, 4-5. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world, swords and spears and arrows. On the contrary, our weapons, they have 
divine power to demolish, and I've put in brackets here, intellectual, to bring out the point, intellectual strongholds. We're not attacking literal strongholds, forts, castles. We're attacking ideological strongholds. This is clear from what he immediately goes on to say. They have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish, not castles, we demolish arguments. Not castles, not people, arguments. And every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So this, this passage is often quoted in terms of, you know, this is about spiritual warfare. Well, yes it is, but spiritual warfare is warfare at the level of ideas and people's commitments to different ways of understanding and living in the world. And we engage not with the weapons of the world, but with the divinely sanctioned weapons of, of, of arguing about things. That's not being argumentative and getting, getting uh, angry about things at each other. That's reasonably having a discussion and a, a debate about it. Nor is there really a, a distinction to be drawn, I think, here between uh, apologetics uh, being rational and it being something about relationships, relational. I, I think it, it has to be both. Christ com commanded his followers to advance his message by the irresistible force of love and the power of truth. You know what the Bible says about speaking the truth in love? You've got to do both. It's not a choice. I love this quote from Nicola Veal. And she says, people in a relationship, people in relationships need to inquire, to learn and build on what they know about each other. That's how you develop your relationship with a friend or a boyfriend or a husband or a wife or whatever. Relationships that are characterised by thoughtlessness are going nowhere. And we cannot trust others without testing their trustworthiness. We should build relationships in a relational way and we should use rationality in a relational way. The Christian faith is about a relationship with God, and like any other relationship, this requires thought. So again, it's not an either-or choice. It's both relational and it's rational, thoughtful. And just one slide on the fact that some people say, you know, Apologetics doesn't work. You can't argue people into the kingdom. You know, I know what they mean, but I'm very tempted to reply, yes, you can, and if you can't argue people into the kingdom, what on earth would Jesus and Peter and Paul and Apollos and Timothy and doing in the book of Acts when they went out and they argued with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Greeks and the Stoics and the Epicureans and so on. Here's a, a quote from a, a student from Venezuela, of all places, who wrote to me, wrote me an email a few years ago, and she said, as a graduate student of philosophy, I'm an eager reader of your books. I thought, ooh, that's nice. Uh, but it's more than just nice for me, because she says this. Um, 
which have been instrumental in my rejection of agnosticism and naturalism and have contributed strongly to make me a newborn Christian. Now, yeah, I'm, I'm not saying, you know, she just became a Christian because she read some books and articles by me, and she's not saying that. But she's saying it contributed strongly, it helped her. It was helpful in that process of moving from being a, a, a naturalist and becoming a Christian. Uh, apologetics has a helpful place in some people's journey of faith or, or life of faith, going back to, to having a relationship with God in a thoughtful way. Um, we are, you are now, worshipping God with your minds. Uh, worshipping is not just praising God by singing a song or uh, giving money to charity or, or you know, doing something nice or whatever. Worship covers, you know, as Paul says, the whole of our lives. You're, you're eating and sleeping and living. Whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. And that includes our thinking about God and the world, just as much as it includes playing praise songs or engaging in social action or whatever. So a couple of quotes from, uh, you heard of Francis Schaeffer, he was a Christian thinker in the, in the 70s from Switzerland, who's been very influential in the, the world of apologetics uh, since he was writing in the, the 60s, 70s of the, the last millennium, can you believe it? Uh, the purpose of apologetics, says Schaefer, is not just to win an argument or a discussion, but that people are, become Christians and then live under the Lordship of Christ in the whole spectrum of their life. I'm only interested in an apologetic that leads two directions. One is to lead people to Christ as Saviour, and the other is that after they've become Christians for them to realise the Lordship of Christ in the whole of life, to worship God with the whole of their life, including the life of their mind. Brief pause. Anyone want to ask a question, put a point, ask for clarifying of something, say, what the heck did that word mean? Because uh, I apologise for having to speak in English. Um, anything like that, anything you want to ask before I move on. Yes, sir. Are you going to argue for Christianity through this session? Are you talking about like objectives? Mm. So, yeah, this, this talk is not an argument for Christianity. Uh, this talk is an investigation of what Christians should, should understand, should mean by apologetics. This, this process that in, includes arguing for Christianity, but what, it, what, what are we doing when we do that? What should we mean by that? How should we go about it? What's the right sort of biblical way to think about doing it? Yeah. yeah. But if you have questions about uh, the truth of Christianity and so on, um, A, the business card will give you a good start, and B, I will be hanging around after the formal stuff is over, and you can come and ask me questions about things if you, you've got a, some sort of burning issue that you want to, uh, what about this, you know? Um, very happy to talk talk about those things, but yeah, I'm not going to here. So um, here's here's my definition. It's a bit long, but by the time we've uh, got to the end, it will be crystal clear to you all, or at least I hope it will. Um, <laughs> so here's how I 
propose we think of apologetics that it is it's the art of persuasively there's that word persuasive persuasively advocating a Christian spirituality and we're doing that to people who who have non-Christian spiritualities we're doing it across spiritualities and we're doing this advocacy through the responsible use of rhetoric and we're advocating that the idea that Christian spirituality, a Christian way of life, if you like, is objectively true and good and beautiful. And people have questions and objections in, in all three of those areas about Christianity. So there are three key ideas here. Spirituality, way of life, rhetoric, and these, these three ideas about value, what's worthwhile, truth and goodness and beauty. Yeah, skip to this. So here's what I think of a, just a general definition of, I know the, the English word spirituality doesn't translate the concept across very well, but if you think way of life, that's probably about the same idea. A spirituality aims to be a, a virtuous, a good, integrative way of life, a way of life that, that makes you more whole as a person, as you relate to reality. And it does that by trying to pull together your, your assumptions, your ideas about the world, what's, what's right and what's wrong, what's true and false and so on, your ideas about things, what you think, but also your attitudes towards things. How do you, not only how do you feel about what you think, but you know, what do you commit yourself to? What's your attitude towards God, if you think there is one, and so on? And what you do, your actions that follow from that combination of your, uh, your assumptions, your ideas, your beliefs, and your attitudes. Your, in other words, your, the combination of your head and your heart and your hands to also alliterate, three A's and three H's, Baptist background. Um, all sermons used to be structured with three points beginning with the same letter back in my day. Um, this, this is a spirituality, and different people have different spiritualities, but an atheist like Richard Dawkins has a spirituality, it's just a different one than I have. He has things that he thinks about and believes and assumes and he has attitudes of his heart and commitments towards things and he, he behaves in a certain way because of that. These become a, a kind of self-reinforcing loop in people's life. It's like uh, rolling a snowball down a hill and it gets bigger and bigger. The more that you you have these assumptions and attitudes, say you believe that there is a God and you think, hey, that's a good thing. That might well lead you to, I don't know, going, going to a group like this. And so you find out more. You know, that's an action, going to a group. Bothering to spend time thinking about it. That probably reinforces your belief and understanding of God and refines your attitudes towards God. And you find out more about him and you think, wow, God's even more amazing than I used to think he was. And that leads you to behaving, and so on. And 
that's true in the sense of all spiritualities, which is why it's very difficult to get people to change their spirituality. When you, you, know, when you ask an, an agnostic or a Muslim to become a Christian, you're not just asking them to change their mind about how they would answer a few pub quiz questions. You know, who is Jesus? Is there a God? What's the meaning of life? Yeah, I'm signing, sign me up for Christianity. It's, these things are much deeper than that. They affect someone's whole way of life, their whole way of relating to the world and other people and reality and themselves, their self-understanding. It's difficult to get someone to change, not just their mind about that, but to change their way of life. To say, yeah, I'm going to stop being a Muslim and I'm going to follow Jesus Christ as the Messiah. That's a big, difficult change for someone to make in their life. Now this, this structure of spirituality is not just something that I've thought of off the top of my head. It seems to me that Jesus got there first and he got there on the basis of what the Old Testament said about it anyway. He said, you know, the, 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 the most important uh, commandment, if you like, is to love God with all of your heart and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. Head, heart, hands. Christian spirituality means loving God with all of your everything and loving your neighbour as well as yourself and you do that through trust in Christ. You have a Christ-centred spirituality. Um, so, again, back to Acts uh, 2.37. You can see after Peter has uh, preached the first persuasive evangelistic message uh, to fellow Jews in Jerusalem. It says this, when the people heard this, his message about the gospel, when they believed the truth claims about Jesus and his resurrection that Peter had told them, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They had a certain response to it. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Head, heart, hands. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, says Paul in Colossians. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach. Whatever you do, do it all in the name of Jesus Christ. Once you have this structure in mind, yeah, following Jesus means following him with everything I am. And a really useful way of thinking of that is kind of, you know, my, my, my thought life, my attitudes, my heart, and what I do. You find it cropping up all over the place in scripture. Because I think that's just basically an accurate reflection of the kind of beings that God has made us. Uh, and you'll, you'll find even non-Christian non writers on spirituality ending up with this kind of structure. Or psychologists, if you think of um, cognitive behavioural therapy in psychology, um, that basically uses this same structure to address psychological problems. So 1 Peter 3.15 will fall into the same, you know, do this, give it, do it, heart, hope, gentleness, respect, the head, prepared answers, reason, and so on. So that covers uh, spirituality 
before I move on to talk about rhetoric, any uh, questions or points or anything you want to bring up about that? Grand. Okay, I will take that as a good sign. Um, if you're just too, too shy or whatever to ask a question in the group and say, I'll, I'll stay behind afterwards, I'm really happy to chat one-on-one -on -one with people. So we're trying to, to advocate a Christian spirituality to people who don't share it. That's point number one. How do we do it? Through the responsible use of, ooh, rhetoric. Certainly in English, that's become a bit of a scare word. You might say of a politician. Oh, that, that speech that Theresa May just gave, that was just rhetoric. Well, they wouldn't have thought about rhetoric in that way back in New Testament times. It's a Greek word again. Uh, Alistair McGrath, who's a British theologian, says that, that uh, Christians need to know about rhetoric to go, do good persuasive evangelism, and references Aristotle, the, the pagan Greek thinker Aristotle, who was one of the uh, thinkers who wrote the first sort of textbook on rhetoric. Uh, he says this gives us an effective, more effective framework for apologetics. Uh, Aristotle wrote a book called On Rhetoric. It's basically a book on how to persuade people about things in, uh, in a good way, not in a manipulative way. So there's a difference between bad rhetoric, um, example, think of the advert for a car that advertises the car to you by, here's a really kind of 1970s type example, let's have a tall blonde lady in a bikini drape her over the bonnet of the car and put a picture of that in the magazine. That'll sell the car. See? It's got Nothing to do with the car, everything to do with, with pulling a certain audience's attention towards the car. That's bad rhetoric. But if you had a, a car advert that said, you know, um, buy the latest electric car from uh, Toyota or whatever, uh, because you'll get a tax break from the government uh, on getting that car and it's really good for the environment, well, you say, well, that's good rhetoric. It's giving you some, some reasonable information about the car uh, that you might consider important in making up your mind about what car to buy. So he's talking about good rhetoric, not bad rhetoric. And just as St Paul was happy to quote pagan poets and, and philosophers and writers in his speech at the Areopagus in, in Acts chapter 17, uh, so we can uh, nick some useful thoughts from Aristotle. That's fine. Truth is truth wherever you find it. So Aristotle defined rhetoric as the power to observe the persuasiveness of which any particular uh, matter, sorry, misspelt matter, uh, has. So it, it, it's, it's looking at something and thinking, what really is truly persuasive about this? What really is truly attractive about this thing? And then how can I help other people to notice that? So I, I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to um, persuade them using bad rhetoric, tactics, emotivism. Uh, I, I'm not trying to distract them from the thing that I'm trying to sell them by putting a blonde and a bikini on it. 
so they're thinking more about the blonde in the bikini and oh if i buy that car i might get a blonde with a bikini it's like that doesn't follow <laughs> certainly not in my case um, but actually saying hey th these are good reasons to be attracted to this car rather than that one or whatever uh, helping people to notice what really is persuasive about you know a car or about jesus and a life following him rhetoric is just thinking about the principles of how best to communicate these objective observations and help people to notice the same things and he talks about these three elements of rhetoric which he calls uh, ethos that's the personal character of the speaker do I come across as a, a shifty used car salesman who's just in it to make money? Or do I come across as a reliable sort of person who knows what he's talking about when he talks about auto mechanics uh, and is unlikely to be in it just to try and get as much money out of you as possible before I close down the garage and leave town before you notice that the car that I've just sold you was actually, it used to be two different cars and I've welded it together. Mm. <laughs> you know. You're making a judgment about my reliability, my character, as I'm communicating about cars or about Christ. That's ethos. That obviously relates to, to goodness. Am I, uh, am I good? The second uh, element of rhetoric he calls pathos. Putting the audience into a certain frame of mind. This really relates to to beauty, which I'll again talk more about in a minute. Um, pathos, it's where we get the English word. Um, think of Tchaikovsky, the, the Russian composer Tchaikovsky. Here's a famous symphony um, called the Pathetic Symphony. And you, you might kind of mishear that and think, why would anyone have a symphony and call it the Pathetic Symphony? Yeah, what, the rubbish symphony, the really terrible symphony? Well, no, it's Pathetic from the Greek pathos meaning a piece of music that will really move you it really we have this English expression um, tug at the strings of your heart um, it's, it's like you can't but help but notice oh that is so beautiful and tragic and oh you know so he's talking about noticing beauty helping people to notice beauty and the third element Logos, which might be a word you recognise from its New Testament usage, say in the beginning of John's Gospel, in the Greek is, you know, in the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. Logos is a, is a Greek uh, term from Greek philosophy that John nicked to use in trying to communicate the Gospel to Greek people. And it kind of means all sorts of things. It means, well, we often translate it in English as word. What, what, what do you translate it as in, in uh, Norwegian Gospels? Something that means word. Yeah. And that's because word means kind of information, communication. You can see that's kind of appropriate. Jesus communicates information about God and the Gospel to us. Shows us God. But it also means things like being reasonable rationality, uh, the basic fundamental order behind all these things that we notice around us in the world, that Greek philosophers would try and, try and understand the logos of reality, 
or a modern-day scientist, even though he's an atheist, like you know, Stephen Hawking, in the end of his famous book about a brief history of time, said, you know, if, if we could come to understand the, the, the physical theory of everything, if we could get this equation that we can kind of write down on a T-shirt that describes all the other laws of physics follow from this. If we could get such a thing, he says, then we would understand the mind of God. Now, he doesn't believe that there is a God. But what he's saying is, is something similar to those, those Greeks. who saying, we want to understand the logos. And John is saying, yeah, you're, you're right, there is a logos. There's something behind reality that we want to try and understand. And it is reasonable. And we should think that we can probably you know, come to understand it. But here's the amazing thing. The logos has come to us in person in Jesus. It's not just an equation or a, a concept. It's a person. The Logos is God revealing himself in Christ. Wow! Think about that. So, Logos here, communication, reasonable, rational communication and information, that relates to truth. The value of truth. So, head, hearts, hands, spirituality relates the head, obviously most, first and foremost, relates to logos, to truth. The heart relates first and foremost to pathos. The hands first and foremost to, you know, behaviour, actions. That's what I judge your moral goodness by, by our ethos. And these things then obviously relate back to the, the biblical passages that I've, that I've mentioned. And we've already brought up true, the good, and the beautiful in describing rhetoric. Just a very brief word on those. Uh, values, that, that big long word means things we can judge all sorts of stuff by whatever subject at university we're studying. So the historian and the scientist and the psychologist and the uh, uh, statistician uh, and, and so on and so forth, they're all interested in what's true. And they all use that value to judge the worth of a particular theory in their field. But the idea of truth and seeking truth doesn't belong to historians or to scientists or philosophers or whatever. It belongs to all of the subjects. And the same with, with goodness and beauty as well. So here is... Uh, Paul, writing in Philippians, giving advice about evangelism. Remember, Aristotle's on rhetoric. Aristotle lived before Paul. And I can't prove that Paul had read Aristotle. But he might have done. I, and he was certainly familiar with those kind of ideas. He knew his Greek culture. He'd been educated in Greek culture as well as Hebrew thought. And it's interesting to note here that Paul, talking about persuasive evangelism, notes the very th same three aspects of rhetoric, the same three values that they relate to, in the same order that Aristotle writes about them in. Is that just a coincidence? I don't know. <laughs> but he says this, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is, is true... 
Whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, this is about goodness, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, this is about beauty. If anything's excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Meditate on such things. Be preoccupied with such things. And I think he would say then when we're evangelising other people, be preoccupied with trying to help them to see that all of these things apply to Jesus and to a life of following Jesus. Truth, beauty and goodness. Particularly beauty. In, in our culture, um, some people question truth, you know, postmodernism and all of that. Although that's kind of dying down these days. Most people are fairly happy with truth. And even those who say they don't really believe in goodness get really annoyed if you do something that they think is wrong. <laughs> and they understand when they're watching uh, certain game shows on television. Um, you know, whether the, whether the judging and the voting and so on is just or unjust. And they, they get really angry at injustice. And they say, hang on a minute, I, th I thought you said you didn't think there was any such thing as real good and evil. It's all just subjective and made up by us. Why are you getting so angry about other people's opinions? I thought you said, you know, different strokes for different folks. They don't really believe it. And the church has done a good job of holding on to truth and goodness. And the ideas of good and evil, true and false. Without those, you don't have much of a gospel to share. But also, what about beauty? I think too much of the church has bought into the, the cultural idea that beauty is subjective, that beauty is just in the eye of the beholder. Of course, some people are better at noticing beauty than other people. Uh, I might not find opera beautiful but I bet you that if I found someone who was really passionate about opera and they spent some time with me they could probably help me to see what is beautiful in opera we, we often have that kind of experience in life so the fact that I don't get it doesn't mean that it's not beautiful it just means well I don't get it it still makes sense to say it is beautiful Something's beautiful not because someone does admire it, but because it is admirable in and of itself. It is good that they admire it. And you can mean that good that they admire, admire it in an objective moral sense. It is right that you admire Christ. He is admirable. He is beautiful. British philosopher John Cottingham says this, the, the increasing consensus among philosophers today, perhaps surprisingly, is that some kind of objectivism of truth and of value is correct. Truth, beauty and goodness, they all carry with them this sense of requirement or a sense of demand in our experience. The true is that which is worthy of belief. It's worth believing because it's true. The beautiful is that which is worthy of admiration. And the good is that which is worthy of choice. And if you want to say to people, look, not only is Jesus, you know, the way, the truth, the life. He is the truth. He is the way to a, a, a better, 
good life, a forgiven life, where God helps redeem you, clean you of your sin and so on, and that following him is beautiful. And Paul talks about, as we, as we put on Christ and follow him, become more like him, grow closer to him, we go from glory to glory. Hebrew concept there about glory, the beauty of God. Um, in a recent survey among philosophers, they did a big survey asking philosophers a whole load of different questions. 41% of contemporary philosophers said they accepted or leaned towards the objectivity of beauty. Now, it's not the majority, but it is the biggest group because only 34.4% said they accepted or leaned towards thinking that beauty was subjective and the others are kind of oh, I don't know, not my area <laughs> so it, it is actually much more sort of respectable in terms of culture today not that we have to bother about that much <laughs> but it makes our task easier um, when culture does agree with us <laughs> to tell people that actually we, we think, you know, it's worth thinking about beauty. People don't necessarily think, oh, beauty, that's just in the eye of the beholder and so on. They, they, they engage with beauty. People will spend, you know, their hobby time, their money, their cultural institutions on going to appreciate beauty, going to hear an orchestra play, a singer sing, a band do a gig, watch a film by James Cameron or whoever because wow there's there's beauty and it's talking about ideas and what's what's true and what is a good life and is he heroic or not and what you know is that films are all about the true and the good and the beautiful so uh, if you summarize that all together in a nice chart woohoo a chart we have Spirituality, different people have different spiritualities, different combinations of their head and their heart and their hands. They just put different content in those categories. And they overlap to some extent, but there are differences. So we have spirituality, we have a Christ-centered spirituality. We're trying to communicate that to other people to help them uh, to uh, want to adopt it. That's what evangelism is. We communicate that through responsible classical rhetoric that relates to these elements of our personality as God designed it. And these things are judged by these traditional values, values that are endorsed by you know, pagan Greek philosophy, but are endorsed by the Bible as well, that are endorsed by many people in today's culture. Uh, so you have a common ground uh, to talk about these things on. You, you know, you're judging um, the truth of the Logos that people are thinking about in their heads, but also the, the beauty of Christ, the beauty of the way of life, the beauty of the commitments, uh, the beauty of the pathos of the cross, and so on, and the goodness of the ethos of, of the character of God and of Christ, of what he calls you to do, the way of life he wants you to live. Uh, for your own good, for others' good uh, as well. So all of those tie up in a nice kind of package. And now you see why uh, apologetics is the art of persuasively advocating Christian spirituality across spiritualities through the responsible use of rhetoric as really objectively true and good and beautiful. And that is, I hope, a helpful way of thinking
not only about apologetic stroke evangelism, but also what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Um, because you can't really think about one without doing the other in either direction. <laughs> you could be tempted to think of this as a burden, because you're like, oh, yeah, I've, I follow Jesus, I've got to do evangelism, and that's tough, that's difficult, yeah. Yeah, it is. It's also fun, as those involved in Skeptics a Week can uh, testify. It is a loving service, not only to God, but to your neighbour. You, you know, you found out about a fantastic chocolate cake. I uh, pick up the occasional Norwegian word. Fantastisk uh, chocolate cake. And so, because you love your neighbour, you love your friends, who, hey, they don't know about chocolate cake. You want them to know about chocolate cake. Hey, come and experience this chocolate cake, guys. Well, why should we do that? I'm very sceptical about chocolate cake. Well, because, you know, it really is true uh, that it is really pleasurable and, and beautiful. It's a beautifully made cake. Uh, it gives you uh, beautiful experiences if you engage with it in the right way. You, know, you, you eat it, not, yeah. Um, <laughs> and it's a, it's a good thing. Enjoying sharing chocolate cake with your friends is, is really good. <laughs> Well, if you want to do that with chocolate cake, you know, why wouldn't you want to do that with Jesus? <laughs> so, there you are. Just a, a quote from Alistair McGrath. That is a picture of British theologian Alistair McGrath standing here. He says, think about it this way. We, we can't allow Christ to reign in our hearts if he doesn't also guide our thinking. You know, worship is not just about this. It is about this. But it's about more than that. The discipleship of the mind, just as important as any other part of the process that we, we grow in faith. We must see ourselves as standard bearers for the spiritual, the ethical, the imaginative, the intellectual vitality of Christian faith. We've got to work out why we believe that certain things are true. And what difference they make? What difference does that belief make to our way of life? And so on. Above all, we've got to expand our vision of the Christian gospel. Apologetics involves enabling people to glimpse something of the glory and beauty of God. It engages not only the mind, but also the heart. And we, we impoverish the gospel if we neglect its impact uh, on all of our God-given faculties. So we're called upon to demonstrate and to embody the truth and the beauty and the goodness of faith and of the gospel and of Christ. And, you know, I don't know about you, but I think, that's exciting! That is something worth getting out of bed for in the morning. Uh, and I'm going to stop there and ask if you have any questions, because we have a little time left for that. Uh, in group and then uh, when we finish or if you don't have any I will hang around come and ask me more about this or anything else uh, that you want related to Christian apologetics and I'll do my best uh, and if I don't know I'll say and I'll go away and try and find out and you've got my contact details and uh, just, just be encouraged and uh, enthused and have fun and think actually this is this is doable I don't have to go around bashing people over the head with the Bible who aren't interested. <laughs> but people are interested in, in truth and goodness and, and beauty and they engage with those things and if we can then help them to link that with the gospel and see that actually we're excited about Jesus because of X, Y and Z, 
then they might very well get excited about him as well. After all, it, it worked for us. <laughs> so it might well work for other people. Thank you very much.